Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here, continuing on at the China History Podcast with the life and times of the Song Dynasty Emperor Huizong. I'm using Patricia Buckley Ibri's recent biography entitled Emperor Huizong to primarily tell this story. So, part two this time. In the last episode, after a brief overview of the Northern Song, we looked at the chronology of events that led Huizong to the emperorship, even though he wasn't technically next in line. Huizong reigned in the early 12th century. He began his reign in 1100. The year Cusco was founded, the great Inca capital, Machu Picchu, would be built there 350 years later. This is also the time period when the compass was first introduced to the world, and that, of course, enabled the whole age of exploration thing. The Knights Templar were founded, and the construction uh, began at Angkor Wat. So this is the general time period. Aside from playing an unwitting role in the demise of the northern Song dynasty, Huizong is mainly known as one of China's greatest patrons of the arts. Not only that, it's also accepted among historians that Huizong himself also achieved his own modest success with his skills with a brush. In the palace museums, private collections, and places where the greatest Chinese art is on display, there are plenty of paintings that once hung in the emperor's palace, but there aren't that many that were actually painted by the emperor's own hand. That's one of the things that's so special about this emperor. There are quite a few Huizongs hanging on the walls of many museums and private collections. Not only was he another in a long line of emperors who had a trained and discerning eye for painting, but he excelled in calligraphy and poetry as well. Back in Huizong's day, you had what was known as the Three Perfections. The Three Perfections were poetry, calligraphy, and painting. One's achievement in these three skills back then was often how you were defined in, you know, elite Song society. To achieve true greatness in all three perfections was quite rare. Plenty, though, throughout the ages would achieve recognition in two, either poetry and calligraphy or calligraphy and painting, but to be a master of all three, eh, that was pretty rare, and history doesn't record too many that had it all. But this is what Huizong wanted to be and to be seen as. He was very talented, there was no doubt about that. Being emperor and all, and growing up as the younger brother to the emperor, meant that Huizong had the benefit of learning from the best teachers. Aside from the classics and mathematics, the three perfections, poetry, painting, and calligraphy, were all part of the learning process. So Huizong grew up with this tradition and was always surrounded in this palace environment with the smartest men in China. So it's not at all amazing that when Huizong took the throne, he immediately embraced this particular aspect of being emperor and, you know, of assuming the role of the top arbiter of good taste and aesthetics in the palace in Kaifeng. Remember, at this time in the world, China was probably the most advanced, richest, most educated civilization. By the time of the Song Dynasty, all kinds of things were happening that were causing a, a whole explosion of activity. Masses of people were on the move for the first time in China. There was upward mobility and government for men of talent, and the economy was booming. China's population hit 100 million for the first time. So today, let's look at the early years of Huizong's reign how he kept juggling officials, and what kind of people he surrounded himself with. 
There were six era names to the reign of Huizong. We looked at the Jianzhong Jingguo era, 1100 to 1101. Today our focus is the Chongning era, 1102 to 1106, and the Da Guan era, 1107 to 1110. These are era names, Chinese Nian Hao. This was something emperors did going back to the Han Dynasty, sort of a marketing tool, you know, the imperial court used to brand a new age and the emperor's overall reign. So 1100 to 1101, this single year, they called the Jianzhong Jingguo era. Jianzhong means to establish the middle, which in this case means the middle ground between the two opposing factions. Jingguo means tranquil country. So remember, when, when he mounted the throne, Huizong was determined to make peace between the conservative and reform factions and invited talent from both sides of the aisle. In addition to that, a peaceful China was also Huizong's goal. So they came out of the starting gate this way, and in 1102, a new era began with the Chongning. Anyway, Huizong did this six times during his reign. Six era names. To quickly review, Wang Anshir's reforms happened under the Shenzong Emperor. Then he dies, and there is a backlash under the Zhezong Emperor, and the backbiting going on between the reformers and conservatives is something fierce during Zhezong's reign. So once brother Zhezong dies and Huizong becomes emperor, he is determined to become the great bridge of reconciliation and cooperation between these two warring palace factions. And instead... He ends up pleasing nobody. He picked as his chief counselors Han Zhongyan, a moderate conservative, and Zhang Bu, a moderate reformer. We discussed these guys last time. Zhang Bu tried and failed to steer a centrist path. The conservative faction pulled out all the stops to get rid of him and ultimately succeeded. Chen Guan was someone Zhang Bu had invited into the top levels of government, a very capable official, but of a different sort of politics than Zhang Bu. Once Chen Guan had gained Huizong's trust, he would try and ultimately succeed in bringing down Zhang Bu. So you might recall from the last episode, Huizong brought all these conservatives into his predominantly reform-minded administration. And a year later, the fighting got so bad that he had to get rid of them, including uh, Han Zhongyan and Zhang Bu. They were replaced with men like Zhao Tingzhi, Cai Jing, Cai Bian, Zhang Shangying. Conservatives were back in the doghouse again, and the reforms of Wang Anshi, carried out by the Shenzong Emperor, made a comeback. Only one year into the Emperor's reign, his adopted mother, the Empress Dowager Xiang, left this world. Things like this always ushered in a whole wave of ceremony, ritual, not to mention great expense. Remember, he had called on Empress Dowager Xiang to become his advisor when he became emperor, something which she reluctantly agreed. Well, after her death, she was off the hook and was finished for good with the Song court politics. This part of the emperorship, the ritual part, Huizong always did well. He took all these rituals seriously and performed all the rites demanded by the emperor in his role as son of heaven. And it was the three Lees that, since the Zhou and Han dynasties dictated just about everything there was that had anything to do with palace ritual. The three Lees, or the San Li, were the Zhou Li, Yi Li, and the Li Ji. 
The Rights of Joe, The Book of Etiquette and Rights, and The Book of Rights. These three Confucian works comprise the rule book for one's personal conduct, decorum, and carrying out rituals, including those carried out specifically by the emperor. Only the Li Ji was considered one of the sacred books of Confucianism, the Si Shu Wu Jing, the four books and the five classics. But these three Li's formed the core of Confucian rites and rituals. Hui Zhong had a major hand in national finances as well. The state brought in an annual revenue equivalent to 100 million strings of cash. A string of cash would be a thousand coins, you know, those copper coins with the square holes in the center, all strung together. The biggest expense was the military. 30% of government revenues went to that. In the U.S., we're at about 20%, give or take. Just to manage the day-to-day -day expenses of the palace and all the royals ate up another 5% of the budget. And to avoid putting all their eggs in one basket, the way they did it back then was to spread the treasury out amongst, you know, a hundred smaller, like Fort Knoxes, in and around Kaifeng. Huizong, like past and future emperors, had a privy purse that he himself had discretion to spend as he saw fit. Let's get back to Tsai Jing, who we mentioned in the last episode. He became Huizong's senior grand counselor in 1102. He was one of Chen Guan's rivals and the two constantly jockeyed for position at the top. Tsai Jing remained the bane of all conservatives at court and came down hard on them when they would express dissent and not go along with what the emperor said. In theory, the way it worked was Hui Zong's shared power with his council of state, of which Tsai Jing was the top guy. As powerful as Tsai Jing was, he wasn't omnipotent and was kept in check by the censorate and the Bureau of Policy Criticism. Hui Zong, after dealing with the cacophony of voices all clamoring for his attention, took the path of least resistance and opted to work with just one guy instead. And that, for the most part, for the next 18 years, would be Tsai Jing. Hui Zong set the tone early on when he said to Tsai Jing, quote, Shen Zong created the new policies, and the former emperor Zhe Zong continued them. Twice there were reversals, so that our national destiny is not yet fulfilled. I wish to return to the goals of my father and elder brother. Unquote. Tsai Jing signed on and promised the emperor to help achieve this objective. Zheng Bu, who preceded Tsai Jing, had written about the two factions this way. He refers to the Yuanyou period. This is the era name of the period in the preceding Zhezong Emperor's reign where the anti-reformers made a comeback and rolled back all Wang Anshir's reforms. These became known as the Yuanyou faction. These were guys like Su Shi, Sima Guang, Chen Guan. There's actually a book that came out in 2008. Ari Daniel Levine is the author, and the book is called Divided by a Common Language, Factional Conflict in Late Northern Song, China. That's from uh, University of Hawaii Press. Lots of source material managed to survive the Jurchens and Kublai Khan's hordes to make it down to this day. So there's quite a detailed record of all the political shenanigans that went on all around the Zhezong and Huizong emperors. Anyway, here's what Patricia Ibri quoted in her book from Zheng Bu. Quote, Formerly during the Yuanyou period, powerful officials monopolized power and led evil factions to slander the former worthies' good government and excellent institutions and made reckless changes to them. 
During the Shaosheng period, when Zhezong personally took charge of the government, he clearly saw through the group's deceptions and banished them in full accord with the law. When I took over, the slate was wiped clean and they were all taken back and brought to court, and yet they conspired to restore the Yuanyo system. Stubbornly, they took ruining the new policies to be payback and hostility to be their responsibility as they slandered and slandered. So, as the Chongning era began, all kinds of reforms were rolled out. Education, public welfare, how officials should be trained and selected. Reforms were also made within the very Zhao imperial clan. Remember, all the emperors surnamed Zhao in the Song Dynasty. Now, later on, plenty of scorn is going to be heaped on Tai Jing, but for now, he was making positive changes. When Huizong took over, the Song treasury was almost depleted, mainly from the cost of defending the borders, but Tai Jing helped put the fiscal house back in order within a few years. Huizong's government was packed with reformers, but even these guys couldn't get along. The five years from 1101 to 1106 were filled with plenty of rancor at the top level. Amidst all the bickering, Tai Jing ended up being dismissed for a time from the top post. Even enough officials were clamoring for this so that all it took was a comet to appear in the sky to give Huizong the absolute proof he needed that Tai Jing had to go. But he was brought back in the, the next year. I know all this partisan bickering, reform-minded liberals and staunch conservatives, court politics and dirty tricks all sounds strangely familiar to a lot of you especially to my fellow Americanskis, this kind of thing is alive and well today, just as it was in the 12th century in China. Some things never change, I guess. So the Huizong Emperor, despite all the discord amongst his officials, he was resolved to being a reforming emperor. And he set up an advisory office in 1102 to look into any partisan resistance to his plans. I mentioned his first priorities out of the starting gate were in education, including how to educate future officials, how officials were to be chosen, and also all kinds of new reforms concerning the dealings inside the palace. All kinds of reforms were also enacted that put some semblance of a safety net in society where widows, orphans, and childless couples were concerned. Public clinics and pharmacies were set up, paupers' graveyards were built, as were shelters for the homeless when the winter set in. It was things like this that were called for. This was nothing that sexy or worth building a monument for, but this mattered to Huizong, and he was the one who called for these kinds of things. Since antiquity, China has led the world in constructing the most intricate and elaborate timekeeping and astronomical devices. So I wanted to tell you about one luxury watch brand, Atelier Wen. They demonstrate high-quality Chinese design and craftsmanship in a single timepiece, and their watches celebrate Chinese culture and craftsmanship. Atelier Wen works with China's best designers and craftsmen of today to bring their collection of beautiful luxury watches proudly made in China. Atelier Wen's perception watch model draws from the exquisite geometries found in traditional Chinese architecture. Each dial is individually hand-cut by China's only Guilloche master craftsman, Cheng Yutsai, who engineered his rose engine machine himself. Due to its complexity, it takes a master craftsman around eight hours to cut one dial. And there were no guilloche machines in China before, and Master Chung had to figure out how to build one without access to any Western prototypes or drawings. 
Check out AtelierWen.com to view their collections and to learn more about Chinese watchmaking. You can mention the CHP at checkout to let them know we sent you. That's A-T-E-L-I-E-R-W-E-N.com to see their impressive collections. The Atelier Wen Perception Watch will make a special gift for yourself or for someone passionate about fine, unique watches. Some of these pauper cemeteries have since been dug up by archaeologists, so we, we know they existed. The graves back then were three feet deep. The gravestone would list the person's name, age, and date of burial. After Hui Zong put his foot down with all the fighting and resistance to his policies, he resorted to implementing a kind of blacklist. It was hard to find Tsai Jing's fingerprints on this blacklist, but it was thought that he was the invisible hand behind this new way of doing things. In all, about 500 officials got the rug pulled out from under them as far as their cushy postings in Kaifeng. They left, and then, well, those with less egregious offenses were later, after time, welcomed back. Anyways, in this age of reform... During Hui Zong's reign, Wang Anshu was dragged out and put on a pedestal. And after enough, heads rolled. The anti-reformers, or Yuanyo partisans, or whatever you want to call them, they laid low for the time being. And then, just as it is now, when the pushback against anti-reformers became a little too extreme, word began to spread that Hui Zong was being too repressive. And, and after a groundswell became apparent, Hui Zong would loosen up and bring the temperature level down. Headline conservatives like Su Shi were really vilified. I'm going to go pay homage to his statue next week when I'm in Hangzhou. Su Shi or Su Dongpo is a future topic. He had a very rich life and is a hometown hero in Hangzhou. Great poet, statesman, calligrapher, writer, painter, the whole shebang, and a real character, too. He wasn't a fan of Wang An Shi or his policies, so this naturally lined him up on the wrong side of Hui Zong, so he was particularly attacked and held up as a bad example. He died in 1101 during Hui Zong's first year as emperor, so he wasn't around to defend himself later on. Tai Jing's son once made the mistake of praising Su Shi's poetry, and Hui Zong came down hard on him. He was stripped of his titles and offices and given the old pink slip, and it took all of Tsai Jing's pleading and conniving to get his son back in Hui Zong's good graces. In the American system of government, we have what's known as executive orders. Obama has used this power 175 times already. Bush, 43, did it 291 times, and Clinton, 364. Hui Zong did the same thing. He left us behind a whole slew of what were known as imperial brush edicts. These imperial brush edicts were sometimes the emperor sounding off about something or showing personal interest in a matter. Sometimes he would issue one of these edicts to show personal commitment to a cause or an issue. These edicts that he would personally issue were his version of what we call the bully pulpit here in the beautiful country. Some would be carefully crafted and concern an issue of national significance. Sometimes they were just hastily written while an official waited in the next room. Hui Zong did this a lot, and many of these documents survive to the present day. But you know how it is. The boss sends out a memo, and everyone in the system knows how to delay implementation or establish a loophole here and there. It was like a game of whack-a-mole between the emperor and his 
20,000 officials and civil servants. A new hole would appear just as Huizong would try to plug one. Huizong was a big-time Taoist. Up till the Song Dynasty, Taoism was mostly embraced by only those in the top level of society. It was more of a belief system that the aristocrats took to. But in the Song Dynasty, Taoism really went mass market. And as Taoism spread throughout this new, vibrant Song China society, all these Taoist masters emerged. And with the rise of these Taoist masters came the fashion of carrying or wearing talismans that gave off you know, special powers and protected people. Believers in Taoism seldom left home without these things hanging on their belt or somewhere. Taoism and Buddhism were always competitors at the imperial court. Depending on the emperor, one always had a leg up on the other. Huizong was clearly an emperor who favored Taoism over Buddhism. With its concept of Wu Wei and the cosmic rituals and gods, Taoism was very attractive to a guy like the Huizong emperor. Taoism thrived during the Song Dynasty, particularly during the reigns of both Huizong and the third Song Emperor, Junzong. Junzong, of course, the son of the Taizong Emperor, brother to the founder, Zhao Kuangyin. He was one of the early ones. Huizong made it his business to outdo the Junzong Emperor as far as patronage of Taoist masters went, and building of temples, and with all the support he gave to writing, collecting, standardizing, and cataloging Taoist texts. To remember from an old podcast, the Li family, who founded the Tang Dynasty back in the 7th century, as part of their marketing brochure, they claimed ancestry to the founder of Taoism himself, good old Lao Tzu. They milked everything they could out of Taoism to build their power and majesty. You see the same thing in our present day. A political force will ally itself to a certain religion and through osmosis would gain whatever additional legitimacy or power that religion could yield. Huizong was this sort, and his religion of choice was Taoism. Hook, line, and sinker. Strangely enough, unlike Qin Shi Huang and others, the immortality aspect of Taoism didn't interest Huizong at all. And Taoism, with its alchemy and ways to obtain superhuman powers and eternal life. I mean, you can imagine how the common folk might take to something like this. Protection from evil spirits, eternal life, flexible gods who offered a lot of wiggle room as far as one's behavior or conduct went. And what can be better than that? I mentioned uh, Liu Hunkang last episode. He was the most famous Taoist master of his day. The talismans that he produced were said to be the most effective and contained all kinds of powers to preserve your health. He served Zhezong and now Huizong. The Zhezong emperor built a temple at Mount Mao, and this served as the base for the Shangqing, or the highest clarity movement in Taoism. Mao Shan is about halfway between Nanjing and Wuxi in Jiangsu province. Huizong's belief in this particular brand of Taoism was total. And during the time when Liu Hunkang was alive, Huizong showered this great Taoist master with lavish gifts, and this guy got more face time with the emperor than anyone except you know the highest ministers. Anyway, Liu Hunkang died in 1108, and his successor was Da Jingzhi, who filled Liu Hunkang's very big shoes. Huizong had maintained a very close and prolific correspondence with Liu Hunkang and Da Jingzhi. 
Thankfully, many of these documents survive to the present day, and they offer yet another nice window into the daily life and thoughts of the Huizong Emperor. These letters reveal that Huizong knew his stuff when it came to Taoism. He, he was no poser. He truly believed it made him a better ruler and allowed him to better serve the people. One of the works Huizong felt compelled to do was to sponsor the collection, study, and complete standardization of all existing Taoist texts so that there was a single liturgy. Huizong did his utmost to incorporate aspects of Taoism into the daily rituals of the court, including the art and literature. And when natural phenomena would appear, Huizong ran straight to the Taoist writings to get interpretations about whatever was observed and what it meant. Confucianism was so strict and confining. Huizong felt that with Taoism, you could take it anywhere you wanted to go. Let me quote from Patricia Ibri's book regarding Emperor Huizong's Taoist chops. Quote, from a Taoist perspective, one could question the depth of his knowledge and view him as a shallow dilettante. From a Confucian perspective, one could, to the contrary, view him as overly credulous and easily misled by the florid rhetoric of Taoist masters, or perhaps drawn in by the visual splendor of Taoist temples. Yet another approach would be to question his sincerity, to posit that he was cynical in his use of Taoism, trying to gain political advantage from his patronage. Confucius had praised the Duke of Zhou, but in Huizong's time, the Duke of Zhou had been dead for 21 centuries already, and the time had come to freshen up some of these palace rituals and ceremonies. Huizong went on a reforming binge beginning in the second era of his reign, the Chongning era. In 1102, he reformed court music, basically resetting the Chinese musical scale and then casting bells tuned to this new scale. Again, seems petty, but you know, in the 12th century, as in the 5th century BC, this was important and music was part of every ceremony, ritual, or proclamation. And casting a new set of imperial bells on the order of the emperor was, well, it was considered a big deal. In 1104 and 1105, the so-called nine cauldrons were cast. A magnificent temple was built to house them and the great architect Li Jie who I mentioned last episode, the guy who designed Huizong's villa when he was still a mere prince, he designed it. Huizong really went overboard with these massive ceremonial cauldrons. The biggest one was nine feet tall, and he built nine of these things. The value Huizong put on these things as far as their ritualistic and symbolic value to the dynasty and to the country's well-being was immeasurable. His whole reign, these nine cauldrons were you know, another big deal to him. And you know, he thought he was doing everyone a favor by calling for such a set of cauldrons to be made. By the way, the uh, same guy who convinced Huizong to cast the bells was the same one who told him uh, he should do the nine cauldrons. So, you know what I'm thinking. So all this hardware was great. Huizong was calling for all these expensive and high-profile adornments to the palace and to his majesty. He was building temples and making big plans for the future. And young Huizong, in sponsoring so many new construction projects, always considered himself the final arbiter of good taste in all things related to architecture. I said it before, the Huizong emperor was no delegator. I mean, he always got personally involved in these matters. But to an emperor like Huizong, who fancied himself a bit of an artistic and literary genius, he needed the software as well as the hardware. 
It wasn't enough to have the greatest builders and craftsmen building all these monuments. He also needed to attract the finest minds in all the arts and sciences. And on top of that, the greatest literary masters needed to be brought to the palace as well. Poets today, both amateur and professional, often have to give their work away for free or beg nicely for donations. But in Huizong's time, the great poets were, were the superstars of their day and were eagerly sought out. In the epic work this complete Song poems, of the 270,000 poems contained in the work, 414 came from Huizong. Now, whether they got included on their own merits or if someone was trying to flatter the emperor, who's to say? 2,000 of those poems came from Su Shi. So Huizong's Song Imperial Palace in Kaifeng served as the black hole that drew in all the greatest minds and talents of their day. And one good thing about working for the emperor, he could afford the most expensive pigments, paints, the best tools, brushes, silk canvases, collections of books, the best of everything that any artist, philosopher, poet, scholar, or craftsman might require. No problem for the emperor to afford the best. And remember, during the Northern Song, that's when book printing was exploding and great works could be disseminated throughout the land. Now, of course, it's the opposite and book printing is imploding, but digital more than makes up for that. Today, we have people in government known as technocrats. For example, trained engineers working in government on matters of engineering. Technocrats are trained in certain sciences and have specialties that they bring to the government to theoretically solve problems faster and bring specialization to the table. Now, up until the Song, there weren't many technocrats. Pre-Song, the only way to serve as a government official was to memorize Confucius and pass the civil service exams and get your Jin Shi degree. Now in the Song, especially during Huizong's time, if you brought some degree of specialization that could solve his headaches, you were hired. You no longer had to be a scholar official. You didn't have to take the civil service exam route to get into government anymore. Huizong had a good right-hand man in Tsai Jing. Inspired by Wang Anshi, Tsai Jing carried out the particulars of education reform. He was also a famous micromanager. And Tsai Jing himself was considered quite the accomplished and respected calligrapher in his day. He got very involved in all aspects of Huizong's reform, both in the arts and sciences, as well as the political reforms. Huizong ushered in an overhaul of the field of medicine. He was a huge patron of advancing medical knowledge. Huizong not only sponsored the construction of many medical schools, but also in the compilation of medical texts and in research as well. And just as the great artists were attracted to the palace, so were the greatest medical minds of their day. All the most respected and well-known institutions today do the same thing in attracting the greatest minds. Hey, today's microsurgery and amazing medical cures all had their beginning somewhere. So Huizong helped move the ball forward on that front, even though carrying amulets and reciting incantations was back then still considered a cure. Just as King Helu in the ancient state of Wu had Sun Tzu as his military advisor, Huizong for eight years had Li Jie as his chief architect. Yeah, I said before what, what Sun Tzu was to strategy, Li Jie was to building and architecture, and Huizong used him well. As I mentioned last time about Li Jie, his Ying Zhao Fa Shi came out early in Huizong's reign, 
And this was the definitive handbook for building standards. It had 193 illustrations and contained in the scrolls were the state of the art in how to make paint, tiles, how to saw wood, build a house. It even detailed the individual work steps involved in manufacturing certain things. How much a worker could saw, carry, or pound in a single workday was also analyzed in the Yingzao Fa shirt. This work had it all, and it's because of this that we remember the great architect Li Jie. As Huizong's head guy and palace building directorate for eight years, Li Jie gave the palace a total makeover. But as a high-up official in this directorate, he also had to handle a whole portfolio of other responsibilities, design, construction, and upkeep of all buildings, city walls, bridges, boats, and carriages. He had to manage all the craftsmen and the employee of the emperor and manage all the accounting of everything he touched. Yeah, Li Jie, not too well known. In between the time he served Huizong, he found time to take care of his ailing parents in the most filial manner of the day, copy several thousand books in his own hand, achieved excellence in calligraphy and painting, wrote works on horses and musical instruments. Huizong loved him, and he mourned him when he died. Where painting was concerned, Huizong came to the throne already quite the expert, and his standards were astronomical. To be a top-rate painter at the court of Huizong, you really had to be good. And there were a lot of these guys. It was in the Song that painters began to sign their works. Sometimes a poem would be incorporated into the painting, and in this way, the three perfections could be manifested in a single work, even though from multiple sources. In Huizong's time, the big three themes in painting were flowers and birds, Taoist and Buddhist subjects, and mountains and rivers. Huizong himself was quite accomplished as a painter of flowers and birds. One of his flower bird paintings, a hand scroll, is hanging at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. A lot of his paintings can be seen in the two greatest museums of Chinese art in Beijing and Taipei. Whatever Huizong's accomplishments were as a painter, they were shouted out by his achievements in calligraphy. This is where Huizong is remembered. Taking the so-called gold-inlaid knife style of calligraphy developed two centuries earlier by Li Yu of the Southern Tang Dynasty, only into his 20s, Huizong introduced his Shou Jing Ti, or slender gold style of calligraphy, and it was this that became his calling card. No one had ever written Chinese characters quite like this. It was described as character strokes that were slender and stiff with overflowing style spirit. They had sharp edges and corners, and to the trained eye, they were very distinctive. Because the most distinguishing characteristic of this calligraphy style were the long, skinny strokes, Huizong would sometime express himself through his calligraphy, perhaps thickening strokes to add emphasis or emotion. If you were a friend of Huizong, Trust me, you had his calligraphy on your wall. He gave gifts of his calligraphy to, to everyone. Friends, officials, guests, anyone. No shortage of this stuff. And thankfully, plenty of it managed to survive Kublai Khan, the Taiping Rebellion, Japanese invasion, civil war, and the Cultural Revolution. I was at a friend's place in Washington recently, and you know, being the man of good taste that he was, he had some Huizong calligraphy hanging on his wall. The curator of painting at the Palace Museum in Beijing, a modern scholar named Yu Hui, said of Huizong, quote, 
No other monarch in world history can compare to Huizong in the range of court arts that flourished under his supervision. Patricia Ibri listed six grand projects that Huizong took on during his reign that showed what was important to him. His involvement in all of these projects was, as I said, hands-on. He was hands-on from inception to completion, no matter painting or a new building. These projects, in short, were in instituting a new Confucian ritual code, one-upping his predecessor, the Zhenzong Emperor, with a bigger and better Taoist canon. He also oversaw the massive work entitled Records of Auspicious Responses of the Zhenghe Reign, the Zhenghe period uh, being 1111 to 1118. This was the fourth era of Huizong's reign. This work was an illustrated history of all the auspicious things that happened during Huizong's reign to date. Regrettably, only a few of these paintings made it down to the present day, but word has come down to us from people who knew that it was pretty amazing. Huizong, like a lot of emperors, was a major collector of everything that was literary or of the arts. From time to time, great men from history would look at the massive accumulation of knowledge and just feel compelled to get it all organized into one single source. You see, more than eight centuries ago, people still dreamed in their own simple way about the internet that we enjoy today. One central place where all knowledge, either general or in a certain subject, could be contained. The Library of Alexandria, the Yongle Encyclopedia, the, the Siku Quanshu. Huizong's particular focus was in art and culture. Books, paintings, calligraphy, antiques, stone rubbings, ancient jades, vessels, anything at all. In Huizong's own time, more than 28 centuries of Chinese history had already passed. So there were a lot of things buried all over the place. Huizong made it an imperial xiangmu, a major project to collect everything, organize it all, and catalog it. The whole field of archaeology really took off in the Song, especially under Huizong's time on the throne. Another of Huizong's larger-than-life projects was a royal park adjacent to the palace where the northern Song imperial family could kick back and spread out. Massive ornamental rocks and trees were dug up and transported great distances to be placed in this massive royal park. Of all the major monumental projects that Huizong sponsored, this park, with its man-made mountains more than any other, fell under a dark black cloud of corruption and excess. It's only natural with all these huge infrastructural projects Huizong called for that people would, you know, cleverly line their pockets. There are no shortage of stories of waste and corruption that came about from these big-ticket projects Huizong called for. And these are among the reasons given to explain his shortcomings. Anywho, I think we're going to put the bookmark back in here. Next time we'll look more at the court life that Huizong was the central part of, as well as how he actually did his daily work as emperor. And in the next episode, we'll see Huizong's reign reach its peak. And then he's going to make a decision that later he lives to regret. But that's all for next time. For now, this is Laszlo Montgomery of the China History Podcast coming to you from Lu Jiazui in downtown Pudong, Shanghai. Here for a couple more days and then off to Hangzhou to go study tea history with a couple of local experts there. More Huizong next time and the time after that. 
Take care, y'alls, and I hope you'll join me next episode for another exciting time at the China History Podcast.